John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 400.1CH2508, certificate number 30371. Election ties. In a special election that many considered a bellwether for the midterms, the race between Republican Troy Balderson and Democrat Danny O'Connor is still too close to call this morning. You don't mean... Like the red and blue power ties? Yeah, that... the clip-on tie that I have that has American flags on it. <laughs> or, or just the very... Uh... Statement-like looking ties that every political male political candidate has to wear. Oh, right. Power tie. Yeah, you'll never see a green tie on a... No, on a it communicates candidate. sickness. That's weakness. Kind of weakness. Yeah. Even magazine covers are not supposed to be green. Uh, no, I'm talking about an actual tied election. A tied election. The same number of votes for each candidate, which, so, which can happen. It seems so unlikely given that your typical election that isn't for like student body president has... So many votes, and yet even if you even if you uh, limit it to you know municipal elections often have ties because eight people voted for dog catcher and eight people voted for, against the dog catcher, right? Um, but even if you limit it to national or you know subnational level uh, states and provinces and whatnot, I was I found twenty or so cases of exactly mathematically tied elections Whoa. in the last century or so. This is a real thing. That laws have to deal with, and you. Uh, I'm going to assume you vote. Why do you vote? Uh, I'm one of those uh, what they call four out of four voters, which means I have voted in every election since I was 18. Yeah, me too. Um, and every small election, every little little, uh, every dog catcher election, I've never even missed the one. Winter Olympics years. <laughs> and you will vote for congressman even if there's no federal even if there's no uh, president on the ballot when i um when i ran for office it uh became a it was an actual thing a um a thing that you know there's this people can look it up yeah there's this whole class of people that um that uh, they're this uh, sort of journalist that really, really closely monitors everything that happens in local elections. And, uh, and I, this was how I discovered I was a four out of four voter was that somebody went back and looked at all my voting records and were like, it's very unusual that someone run for office and have voted in every 
election that they can find. That's the best way to get an honor about yourself is when yeah. you don't even have to look it up. When somebody else finds out something great about you, you didn't know. Yeah, it was really nice and unfortunate. Fortunately, yeah, that may have been the highlight of the campaign. Yeah, for you. it didn't. It didn't end up uh, like ushering me into office. They didn't write like a really great uh, article about me as a result. Well, there are there are kinds of people. There are two kinds of people, basically. I mean, winners, losers. No, I mean people who vote and people who don't. I mean, for the most right. part, there are people who generally vote and people who generally don't. And there, there's actually been like extensive research. There's been twin studies. Like take uh, there was a, in 2007 a UCSD political science researcher took a few hundred pairs of twins and it, not to compare who they voted for but just did they vote and his conclusion was that 60 percent of what makes people vote is just genetic you were born a voter or not really yeah and there's still so 40 percent you know mathematically you can see based on the based on what the twins with the same DNA did are you know 60 percent of the tendency to vote is just chromosomal it's funny both of my parents were were uh religious voters not they, oh really they didn't vote on, based on their religion but they just voted for everything and uh, my mom and i spend an unusual amount of time talking about routes around the city and talking about the upcoming election those are the two things you guys <laughs> yeah. talk about every time she goes from one place to another the the uh, just first thing i say is like well what route did you take and then she describes like every street that she went talk about the fastest way to get to fremont because yeah, we never take the same Kamala route Harris. twice and so people oh, you are, don't take the same i think most people to. having that conversation would be trying to optimize well, we do try to optimize but that requires that we take every it requires research route and so uh, so the people in our family are so frustrated because every time there's a gathering, she and I will kind of at some point or another find a way to say like, so you went from West Seattle to Ballard. Like what, what, this what is, did you This is making me feel lonely because I'm the only such person in my family. Oh, really? And I always want, like if we're like in a, a convoy of two cars, I always want to oh. be like, hey, this is the perfect test case. Absolutely. You guys can take 99 and we'll take the freeway. My mom and I do that all the time just like okay wh which way are you going because that's science yeah she's like well i'm going this way and i'm like okay great i'll take this and way. isn't there an amazing surprise sometime when you assume you're last and you pull into the driveway and you've beaten them by six minutes or whatever and you've advanced the cause of getting to ballard for about a year i timed myself going from uh, because i had a regular route that i had to go from my house to my daughter's school and back yeah. and i timed myself on every route multiple times both directions at different times of day and i kept a log <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a four, you're a four out of four uh, school uh, picker carpool driver too. Really, 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 really crazy. And I wanted to share those results with everybody, with the world, because it, for me, they said so much. Uh, I mean, you know, there was so much we could learn from them. And the only person that cared was my mom. And to, to my sister cares, but not that much. It would be funny if you were submitting them to like technical journals, yeah. and nobody wanted to to print your well. Your now findings. knowing that you are. Uh, this way we should uh, oh, i'm a route head i'm oh. a i'm a route fan we should absolutely start doing that <laughs> i mean it's not like you and i go from one place to another in separate cars that often but like well so you can't go anywhere now so we should start doing it though when the pandemic ends and we can finally go places when our show is over we should each like each week pick a place to go <laughs> to, to like figure out whether the freeway is faster uh yeah and we could like you know constantly be on we could be monitoring each other on cell to make sure we're going speed limits. And so you're a four out of four voter and your parents are too. Yeah, I think so. What about your brother? Uh, I think we're all voters. The funny thing is, and we, we were just discovering this, uh, my parents have produced, uh, four children, I think all of whom are dyed in the wool 
Democratic voters who all married spouses who either were already registered Democrats or have become through years of being beaten down by marriage to a, to a noisy Jennings yeah. have become progressive voters. And all their kids seem like, like my niece is going to Brigham Young University in the fall and she's talking about joining the Young Democrats, which is the smallest group at the Brigham Young <laughs> University. <laughs> it's not the LGBTQ plus oh, yeah. group at Brigham Young? I yeah, that's true. It's probably smaller. the same. It's the same kids, actually. And, but, but, but are your parents Republicans? They are. And kind of uh, apolitical... Oh, yeah. But apolitical in their own minds and becoming more conservative with age. More conservative across the board or more conservative toward this new brand of conservatism? It's inter- I, like- I assume they would be kind of well-behaved uh, conservatives, but Trump skeptics. Yeah. But uh, it turns out it's just kind of an across-the-board drift. And in fact, it seems mostly in my in my parents' case, and especially in my mom's, to be driven not by the usual boogeyman, Roger Ailes and Fox News, because right. they see themselves as above the 24-hour news cycle. And I hope they are. But here's the problem. I, I also see them as above them. But you know what they think that is is right in their wheelhouse? You just, I, when they lived in Salt Lake, I think it was public radio. But here, it's uh, terrestrial radio and broadcast TV. Oh, yeah. And even in a major liberal center like Seattle— I don't know if you know this, broadcast TV and terrestrial radio all cater to a l- whoever's listening to that, which is a largely older and largely suburban audience. Right. And you keep those eyeballs by scaring them and right. angering them up. So it's it's kind of Fox equivalent programming, but it's just being delivered to to you know people in their cars on the ferry who don't know the kind of weaponized view of city politics they're getting. Right. The Seattle Times editorial page it's, has it's always exactly. been exactly. It's the, it's the, what's the name of that family? The Blethens. Oh, the Blethens. Yeah, it's, it's Blethen-friendly takes on how uh, Inslee's corrupt and there's a war on cars and the city just is doing, making white people feel bad about themselves. Well, and the and, thing is, it's always couched in language that makes you feel kind of virtuous and liberal. And that's the beauty of it. She thinks she's getting NPR. Yeah. And it's, in fact, my parents are getting... Because it's like, we're not unreasonable. We think everyone should have rights, and we think that this is— Of course, there should be methadone treatment, but there should not be one in this particular—the one they're proposing now for these procedural reasons. That's exactly right. You know, like, drug addicts need help. They don't need (laughs) methadone clinics. They need help in the form of good Christian parents. So you can nod along. But, but, you know, whichever side of the aisle on, we both came from a family of voters, and there are— the world, America, the world is full of families of non-voters where it's not part of the culture. And I think the reason why is, is easy to see. I mean, the the people who did this twin study talk about how, you know, obviously there's no gene for voting. That was not helpful in the, you know, as, as man evolved. But right. it, it's probably related to some kind of neurobiological tendency toward cooperation. Sure. If you see yourself as part of the unit, you will do what's right for the tribe. Trying to advance the unit right. to, for the betterment of all. Because right? the thing about voting is, and this is, uh, is it's, um, it's almost, it's almost never rational. I mean, not not the the choice of who you vote for, but the decision to vote to spend an hour of your day standing in line, or if you're in an urban center that's had its polling places stripped away by state Republicans right. at nine hours, right? Um, or you, even a Washington State with your little envelope. You don't even get minutes. a cookie for it. Right. Like it's, it, there, Self-interest does not justify voting, and this has been well-known since... It's called the paradox of voting. And uh, the first person to... The French philosopher Condorcet was the first person to suggest this, but it, it is not called Condorcet's paradox because there already is a different voting paradox that we call Condorcet's paradox, hmm. which is that voting preferences are not always transitive. Like Condorcet really got in there on the voting paradox. He got in there. He got in early. <laughs> like he found his niche. 
And he was like, voting's crazy. Here's, he, had a, he had a TED Talk. Also paradoxes, am I right? I mean, it could be a lot of things. Well, we actually call Condorcet's paradoxes when, for example, in the UK, a new, a renegotiated Brexit deal was beating stay. Stay was beating current deal, but current deal was beating renegotiated deal. Right. Maybe I have the arrows wrong. Right. So it's a it's a Ouroboros of... Where, yeah, where you can't actually see the voter preferences because depending on how you pick the pairs... Sure. Um, you get a different majority. But that's a polling paradox, yes. right? Yeah. And this is more uh, a, a deeper philosophical problem. It's, it's often called the Downs paradox because Anthony Downs wrote about it in the 50s, a political scientist. And it really just does show that the argument is correct that you will never you, you will you will never swing an election with your vote. You know your your vote is almost guaranteed to change nothing. Right. Uh, near zero effect that it'll change anything, and yet people put in hours researching uh, and uh, standing in line. You know the process of voting, whereby you know that's time they could spent they could have spent doing anything else. Well, and I think it's kind of what motivates a lot of of online yelling. I think there are a lot of people who think that their work. Is to um, is to change other people's vote, and yet they don't bother to vote themselves. Oh, that's interesting. So, well, I mean, it, it would be true if you could swing thirty votes with activism, right? Rather I, I, than, I, I guess, I don't know why you also wouldn't vote because voting is just inconvenient and difficult. You know, so many people I talk to when I say, you know, hey, did you vote? They go, oh, I was going to. Oh, I meant to. Even I just in didn't, Washington uh, State, where they will mail you a pre-addressed thing, yeah. It's the idea of like opening the envelope, filling out the bubbles. Because I get having not wanting to go to a third location and stand in line in a school gymnasium. And also, especially if I think the reason why there's two groups is because if you're not in the habit, right? If you're in the habit, it's not a hard ask. Just do what you did last year. Yeah. If you're not in the habit, it's like, wait, I have to find out on my own where to go. And it's someplace I've never been. When was the last time you went into a school gymnasium and pulled a a lever behind a curtain? So uh, I voted in person in Utah, which now has very uh, rigorous uh, vote by mail, but did not at the time. We have such great vote by mail here in Washington. It's like one of the best things. But I think even then it was some kind of screen. If you want a physical lever, I believe it was Washington State, 1992. I just turned 18. And I kachunked the tab out of my ballot for Clinton Gore. I feel like I still was voting up there at um, TT Minor School. As late as 96, 98, maybe? When did we get good mail-in voting here? It wasn't until the 2000s. And I remember the first time one of those big fat ballot packets arrived at the house, and I was like, really? Is this serious? I can do this? But I kind of also... I I also have to go vote, right? I don't know what this is, a primary or something, but... I really missed the, you know, the bunting... And the helpful, myopic the old, the old, old people ladies. behind the table. Who my, were like, my grandpa, well into his 80s, would volunteer and sit in front of the public library. Uh, and he loved it. He looked forward to it because yeah. he was retired. I really I loved going to vote. but um, It feels civic in a way that – but even you know the thing that does not feel like civic duty is that it's too easy to do at home. And yet you're telling me that I mean, how often do you millions see, of people are not doing it in this state. How often do you see bunting? Like – Fourth of July is the only time you see it. Or if you live in Brooklyn, Maine, it's kind of up there all summer. But. I love driving by some big white gabled house in early July and seeing it be decked in red, white, and blue. Yeah. And this is, you know, despite the BLM sticker on my car, that's all I want. That's right. A little fife and drum. So, uh, but yeah, people don't do it. It's so easy. You see ballots laying on people's coffee tables three days after the election. It's like, what happened here? Yeah, I uh barrier to entry is so low and you're like an active person. Like you're 
you you seem engaged. I wonder if there's a kind of person that's less likely to vote with the easy, you know, I don't have to plan around it. Now I'll I'll get to it. Yeah. And then, you know, it's easier to procrastinate now maybe. But what you're saying is that there's, there's just a type. Uh, what what percentage of people voted in the last election uh, of eligible voters? Yeah, you can make the number really low by not including eligible. You know, if you want to say only 28% of Americans pulled a lever for Donald Trump, that's true. But it's because people under 18 can vote. Yeah, right. exactly. Uh, turnout in, what do you want, 2016? Yeah. This is the the most recently contested election. It's actually, you know, there was a lot of hand-wringing, if you'll remember, kind of in the 90s, because it had been slipping for decades. And I think it's kind of stabilized and possibly even gone up. I think it was around 55, 56% in 2016. Of eligible voters. Eligible voters. So more than half. Sorry, voting age population. So you you don't say, hey, these are the felons in Florida that got disenfranchised by a Republican legislature. Right. Americans over 18. There's 215 million Americans over 18. And 55% of them turned out in 2016. Highest uh, in recent years, do you know this? Mm-mm. 2008, first Obama win. Like a lot of people who didn't vote were excited to vote for uh, oh, right. first black president. So 58.2. And I bet a lot of people were excited to vote against him too. <laughs> they <laughs> well, didn't, didn't typically wanna, vote. <laughs> I didn't want to put it that way. But yeah, now this year, now that we're the party of uh, where the only excitement of voting is voting against someone. Yeah. Like no, you know, no, no Democrat is excited to vote. Can you imagine someone excited to vote for Joe Biden? I think that there are probably people in like, their are there 60s, six, six old guys in Delaware in sitting their, in front of a store, people in their sitting in front of the Ace Hardware that are like Joe Biden. He's the last of his breed, and I really think he is. There's not going to be another Democratic presidential candidate that is sort of um, the kind of Biden boomer, um, like tried and true still believes in in bipartisanship. I mean, the, the, that's Come not going to exist again. I'll just reach across the aisle. Yeah, what are you talking about? I know a lot of Republican congressmen that are good good men. My buddies. Uh, so, so I bet you there's a nostalgic support for Biden that's more than just I mean, the Boomers had the White House for, since the Boomers somehow had the White House for 30 straight years or something. Yeah. Like, uh, it looked like Gen X was going to be shut out altogether until Biden... Gave Kamala the VP nod. Right. And suddenly there could be a Gen X. It looked like it might skip to millennials. Ugh. Can you imagine the first millennial president? After all oh, our dear. generation suffered and did. After all we gave the world. Yeah. Hey, Gen X. I mean, Throw yeah, us a bone. Depending on where you put the Gen X line, you could say that Obama was a Gen X president. He's, he's really cusp boomer. I, mean, I think uh, by the numbers, he's Boomer. Is that right? But he's, yeah. he's so late. I mean, he's the same age as the as they might be giants. <laughs> like, I don't really feel like he's a Boomer, exactly. Uh, so the solutions that have been given to this problem of why people vote or, you know, why people vote or don't vote, given that it's a... 45% a of the people aren't cause. voting. Yeah. You walk into a cafe, half the people in there do But this vote. is not the problem we're solving. Oh, by the way, I'm looking at numbers. You know, before, you know, when suffrage was not quite universal, it was routine for you know, 80% of American voters to vote. And that starts to sag in the 20th century. The highest since World War II is, this is kind of an Obama-like election, uh, JFK in 1960. Oh, wow. 62.8% of the voters. And most of them... uh, Super close vote. Most of them dead people in Illinois. (laughs) No. But the problem that philosophers... All the Nixon fans are going, yeah, that's damn right. Finally, Ken <laughs> speaks some truth to power. Uh, you know, the problem, the, the paradox being addressed here is not why so many people don't vote, which is what you and I 
civic-minded people wring our hands about. Right. It's really why anybody votes. Right. Why would you vote? Given that it's... Do you ever ask that question, or is it so baked into you that you're just like, well, of course I vote? Uh, yeah, I'm an of course I vote guy. Yeah. So here are the arguments given for why people might vote. There's what's called the mandate argument, which means that even if your vote is unlikely to be the one that moves that moves the needle from loss to win, right. uh, every vote past that point helps create some kind of surge of excitement for a candidate that may help your agenda get passed. But this is so frustrating in an era where the Electoral College has decided so many elections because we've we've seen the yes. popular vote be in the millions and have that mandate unrepresented. Yeah, that's a real – I mean, that's. I, I was going to get to that in yeah, a second. Sorry. But, you, you know, well, you and I are living in an era where it's become frustrating from the left side of the aisle because every – Democratic president since I was every Democratic win since two years I was two years old has been a landslide, whereas every Republican win of the 21st century has been a Democratic win. <laughs> yes, has required things to go exactly the wrong way. A certain Fort Lauderdale ballot has to be wrong just enough so that 116 old Jewish people vote for Pat Buchanan, or exit polls in Ohio say one thing and uh, and yet John Kerry loses Ohio, or. Uh, you know, Trump wins exactly the right districts he needs in three Rust Belt states. And at some point, you know, for a long time, Democrats would just feel like bad things happen to us. Well, because, Demo- because Democrats they're, like they're, to, they're, they're gloomy defeatists. Democrats like to play by the rules, which is like one of the most boring things about Democrats. Well, I was going to ask you that. At what point do you start to think, wow, crazy things have had to happen the three last times a Republican won? What, like, what are like, the odds that's going to keep happening? And what are the odds? Like, when do I start thinking... Uh, somebody's figured out voting machine software. I mean, this is the this is the bit, and I don't think it's really a question of cheating in that sense. It's that uh, that uh, all the way down to the school board level. There's all the systemic things you can yeah, do to cons- discourage voting. Conservative uh, conservative people in politics realized that this was a game you could win, and so and they also realized about in the last twenty to thirty years, you and I have watched this that their the demographics are terrible for them. That they will right. probably not win based on demography in the way they could assume doing throughout the late twentieth century. But gerrymandering is is legal. Yes. So you can uh, and and it's something that people aren't watching. And I think the Democrats and the left typically uh, th- one of the things that works against them is that they're up here talking about lofty ideals and not state legislatures. They're not playing the ground game. Yeah. And we've we've watched it our lifetimes where you see where you see the ground game just getting played. I mean. That's changing. Gore beat Bush by 500,000 popular votes and yet lost because of some hanging chads and ground game and really good ground game in the sense of just like, let's send lawyers in and, and, and obfuscate, right? Um, what, what was the, what was the difference? I mean, Hillary beat, uh, beat it's Trump m- it's by, millions. by millions. It's a right? seven, it's a seven figure number. And that, um, that just feels like, well, it made a, it made everybody feel like, whoa, this is we're it's a little broken. It's broken, and it had always been broken. You know, other elections had been swung this way, but it now seems to be broken in one partisan direction, which I think should be a little worrying, even if your party's benefiting. Well, it should if you're still civic minded. Yeah, um, but if you're not civic minded, if you're just trying to get your ball across the finish, and line. I wonder what the effect is on turnout. Like, uh, you know, everyone's saying now, uh, you know, hopefully. If, you know, the, what you have to do is make 2020 such a landslide that, you know, the, all the built-in 
tricks don't work. Well, or whatever that you they can, are, that you can reform them and hopefully, yeah. hopefully reform them with enough altruism that you're trying to make a better world rather than just trying to swing the guarantee the outcome for your ideology. Yeah, which feels like uh, that's that is the sickness of our of our modern time. Like for the left at this point to gain control of both houses of the Congress and make altruistic decisions instead of super partisan ones feels like maybe, I mean, maybe Biden's the last person that was raised with that as a, as a goal and as an aspiration. Cause certainly I don't, I don't think the first millennial president will, will be like Obama trying to reach across the aisle. It just doesn't feel like part of the part of the conversation. I just anymore. wonder what the effect on voting theory is have people having seen, uh, uh, what, you know, I don't want to say, uh, illicit election wins, but yeah. election wins will certainly devalue the, the impact of your vote. You know, did you ever vote for Nader? I did not. So I was a two time Nader voter. As long as you don't live in Broward County, I don't care. That's exactly right. Right. I mean, I if voted, you, you live in, uh, that's what I say when my mom says she's not, she's never going to vote for divisive Joe Biden. First of all, I roll my eyes and then I say, you live in Washington state, mom, you do whatever you want. And that was, that was part of the problem of that equation then and now, because I voted for Nader in the 2000 election. And there's a somewhat convincing case that it was Nader voters that stole the, those Florida delegates from, or the Florida electoral college votes from Gore. Yeah, like, I'm out here in Washington. They're counting my vote at 11:30 p.m. Right. The networks have called have called the, well in that case no, but the networks usually call the election before the sun gets leaves us. And it ended up not being a question of my vote anyway because it was not a pop it's not a popular mandate. But but to ask myself just like I voted for Nader fully knowing that he wasn't going to win because I wanted that protest vote lodged and I wanted your problems with a two party system. Yeah. I wanted Nader's values to be incorporated into democratic politics. And we see that I think now quite a bit, there's a, there's a movement to protest Biden by and Biden's sort of innate centrist conservatism by either not voting or by voting for an unviable third candidate but also a plenty of um movement by his campaign to try to make sure that uh you know bitter sanders voters don't cost him the election you know right. like overtures to the left and was that i mean was Possibly that symbolic an, an issue in the in the hillary clinton well, i mean hillary clinton is disliked historically unpopular candidate disliked for so many reasons that it's impossible to break down i mean i think right. i think there are plenty of numbers showing that sanders voters were more sympathetic to her campaign than was the reverse case during the primary. Uh-huh. Um, or, you know, the ones who said they would vote for Sanders had he won, his numbers are better than hers. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, even even before our trust in these some of these s- systems started to erode, the mandate argument seemed to be bogus anyway because political scientists have been unable to find any correlation between strength of mandate and the ability to get agenda passed. Like the margin tends to be irrelevant when it comes to government. Isn't that unusual? I know, Because right? we think about it every time Clinton came in and he was going to pass all this. I mean, Obama had such an incredible mandate and we imagined that we would come out of that first four years living in some sort of, I don't know, like floating cities and we could talk to whales. I mean, all this stuff was was in our grasp and Obama wasn't really able to 
I mean, well, he, had a super, he, super majority in the Senate. Yeah, and he I mean, and he, couldn't get single player passed. He got a he got a, <laughs> a like a half assed version. He got of, Romney's health care plan passed. <laughs> <laughs> so why is that? Why doesn't a mandate? Why doesn't control of all of uh, both houses and the and the? Well, I mean, White since House? you mentioned health care, I mean, sixty nine percent of Americans, not Democrats, Americans, are supportive of Medicare for all in some form, and it's right. n- in the platform of neither party. Right. Uh, you know, we have a, a big divide now between voter issues. And I, I assume it's, I mean, maybe this is my naive view, but I assume a lot of it is the money in politics and the fact that the candidates owe more are, are more worried about losing their corporate backers than they are about losing blocks of voters. Is it, is there some kind of like Robert's court thing happening? Like when Roberts took over as, as chief justice, there was like uh, like this doom and gloom feeling that the Supreme Court had gone to the to the far right and would be there forever because there just didn't seem to be any chance that because Roberts is an intellectual that he would ever deviate from his tried and true federalist society th- party yeah, line right such a such a a, a um, not a Borkian but but you know an intellectual conservative and he's been breaking to the middle so hard lately in a way that where you're just like, is there something intrinsic to a bicameral decision-making process where it finds the middle, it finds the middle. And, and even in a Democrat, even in a completely democratic controlled Congress, it's just Murphy's law, right? They're going to find the lowest common uh, place of disagreement. I mean, now it's hard to say because they're, they're effectively two middles, you know, the middle of popular opinion does not match the middle of congressional discourse right you know where there's so many outrageously popular proposals on gun control that a popular vote could pass and a har- popular referendum could pass with 90 percent approval right and they won't clear mcconnell's senate right um so i don't know so there's all these you know all these checks and balances we were so happy about uh also are a set of handbrakes on getting anything done at least in our era um, so the, the argument that I think about most and that I, I think I hear the most when it comes to why vote is or you know an answer to to why should I vote is the generalization argument, which is sure you can say that, but if everybody says that, the system breaks, and that's I think that's what I often think to myself. You Explain know? that. Well, like you know, my vote won't change the election, but if everybody thinks the way I do, oh, then, I then nobody votes. So my opinion can't be right because if applied to the population at large, it would end democracy. Um, but there are answers to that too. Uh, you know, uh, uh, not everyone. For example, a farmer, somebody who doesn't farm could be told, hey, without, if everybody thought I won't be a farmer, we'd all starve. Therefore, 100% of Americans should be farmers. <laughs> right. I mean, there's an argument to be made that this is, the system works just fine with people who want to vote voting and people who don't want to vote not voting, and therefore... Well, it's the... It's the it's some the, places have compulsory voting, by the way. Right. That's an option. And do they have better results, I guess? More reliable I was looking results? into this. There does not appear to be any correlation with any particular ideolo- ideological shift. Okay, like compulsory voting does not tend to push a country to the left or the right consistently. Which is, a, which is when people play the ground game of politics, there's always this fear that more voters mean more liberal voters. More, more yeah. liberal voters because... Because this, the assumption is that the missing 48% of voters is often the excluded poor, 
the uneducated. Is that just from the left, though? Do you think if you asked a conservative, they would say, no, the silent majority is, uh, you know, it's conservative. It depends, but it's the conservatives that typically in this country recently are trying to suppress right. voting. Because they because that's the, and they're not wrong. That's a winning strategy when the, the age and ra- racial demographics are totally against you. But this is a kind of a, this is the, the polling question. The more accurate polling is, in a way, it's like the basketball game problem, right? If both teams are going to score 90 points. The question is who can score 102 to your 98. Yeah. yeah, 98. But, but if polling is accurate, asking one out of 10,000 people or one out of a hundred thousand people, how they're going to vote, then those hundred thousand people don't have to vote. You could just, you could just have 10,000 people vote and get the same result. You could have the people that took the Monmouth poll last week vote and you know, Biden probably wins Texas and Georgia. The problem is that polling is not quite that accurate, right? Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's well understood how accurate it is. Uh, you know, the, to within it, you can see with standard deviations, you can see that 10,000 people gets you to within N percent of accuracy. Uh, the problem is if there's systemic things, you know, if different polls are waiting for education in the wrong way or, right. or if as happened in 2016, if uh, late breaking Voters, James, James Comey's exactly. letter, new information and late decision making fails to be captured in polls. Then right. that can cause a polling to shift wildly, or you know, three percentage points enough in one way. So how much? Other. How much is it? Just like it was raining on election day, like and and how much is that something that we want to encourage or discourage? Yeah, I like if you if you ran twenty sixteen back. A month later, you'd probably get a pretty decisive Clinton victory because you had a lot of people who were like, well, Trump's not going to win, so right. I can stay home, I can write in Mickey Mouse, I can do whatever I want. Right. Uh, they hadn't kind of grappled with the reality of a ser- of him as a serious candidate. And I even, and even many people who voted for him were like, wait, I don't think he was going to win. This was just kind of me voting for Nader. Right. Protest like, vote. If he's actually going to win, no, thank you. Like, that, <laughs> that, you know, that guy's kind of nuts. Um, so I think you would have had some of that. But, you know, but... Um, yeah, but, it, but it's it, hard to say if, you know, things like, you know, little shifts in the wind. I mean, the Comey letter is not that different than rain in the east, rain in the eastern seaboard or something. It really is that, especially since he walked it back three days after the election. And they say everything. And, and now we know he was investigating Trump as well and decided yeah. not to release anything on that. A lot of it does turn out to be turnout. I think that's kind of the new thinking on polling. Like candidates don't actually change swing voters' minds. They just make enough stay home on the other side by being, you know, they make... You're interesting enough to bring out the ones who might stay home, or conversely, you're boring enough that voters who might have voted for another candidate stay home. That's what swings elections. And what's what's crazy about it is that there's an argument in that case to make it seem like you're less assured of a victory than you might be. Right? You don't yeah. if you seem too powerful, too too assured um, that that will suppress voters. Like, I mean, it's interesting. Why would I bother? That's Biden's strategy. I mean, we should say we're recording this in late summer and we have no idea what the landscape is going to look like. Today, right? Much what? less tomorrow. This yeah. episode comes out on election day? I believe that's right. It's a Tuesday, right? Yeah. Um, that's exciting. Go, so, go, go vote, futurelings. Right. And if you live in a mail-in ballot state where your ballot has to be received by today, do not vote by mail. Uh, right. But it's too late. Was- it- Washington's one of the rare postmark states, which is nice. Yeah, you but can if, get it in that right. day. But if the if the new postal postal service leadership is trying to choke off your vote, you might have to go wait in line. Uh, so listen to this only after you voted. Stop right now and go vote. But now I forgot what your question was. Oh, oh, oh right. So in our time, it appears very much like Biden is doing exactly what you're saying, uh, running essentially a, a purely defensive 
candidacy where anything he does, like he knows the ground conditions against Trump are bad. Right. Anything he does might just turn off part of his big tent uh, or give Trump something to campaign against. So it's a very minimalist campaign, which did not work for Hillary, who kind of thought she could play defense and win. Right. Well, but there was there was a kind of smugness to the Hillary campaign toward the end where it was just seemed clear that Trump wasn't in their wasn't in their league and they were already putting together a transition group. Yeah. Um whereas I I really feel like the part of the genius of of Kamala Harris is that as a VP choice as a VP choice is that she just infuriates Trump so much that all all they have to do is just let him come off come completely unglued. Now as you say, we're recording this in August, so right. who knows in the next you know three months what what actually happens? Knock on wood yeah, there, but um, re- she seems unlikely to shoot herself in the foot. Right. Let's put it that way. And she seems likely to be pretty good on a debate stage against Mike Pence, who is not the sharpest tool in the. Uh, he is a in, tool, in the but not shed. the sharpest tool. Other arguments made for voting, despite its irrationality, the moral duty argument. Right, which it, I think you and I both sure it's the it's the right motivated. thing to do as an American. That's why you and I vote, right? It's yeah, just part of citizenship. Well, because we both are convinced that we can make a better world. That the world is not. I don't think either you or I feel like the world is governed by a secret cabal. Right. That the outcome is predetermined, or that things are already so bad that it's too late. Right. We, you and I, neither of us feel that way. No, we both feel despite like, the fact that we do an end of the world podcast <laughs> together. <laughs> but we're we're trying to stave off the end. But we both feel like human beings are on a path that that path is trending upward. That institutions are experiments, and the re- they require participation, and that you know there are pitfalls, but. And, on the, the, on and the, the government on the on the merit on the whole is good, and, yeah. and that voting is a way of supporting those institutions. That's right, and not kind of devolving into kind of a Reagan era uh, government's the problem. We take. don't think regulation is bad. We don't think people are at their best ungoverned. We don't think that natural law should. You know, I, I think we think institutions it's, are. It's because you and I don't have an HOA telling us what color we can paint our house. That's yeah. that's what's turned Americans against regulation. Is HOAs? I thought it was affirmative action that turned Americans against regulation. Uh, that's what turned racist Americans against <laughs> regulation, <laughs> which is an awful lot of people. John, do you have hair? I do have hair, although. I- at age 52, and I just turned 52 a few months ago, um, for the first time after really, really leaning on my luxurious head of ash blonde hair. You were leaning on your own head. I've leaned on it for many years. It's been why I'm so successful, I think, in the world. All this hair. My daughter, in the in the style of a child, a, a, a babe – in earnest, an innocent, an innocent from behind said uh, that she thought my hair was thinning. Hey, and I was like, my hair is not thinning. I put my hand up there, and I can feel the hair. And she said, "Well, I don't know." In certain light, that's the thing about male pattern baldness is the universe puts it in the one place you can't see the back of your own head, which I guess is a mercy. I see. Yeah. Well, but. So now when I put my hand up there, I do feel that the hair at the crown of my head is just slightly featherier, slightly not quite as robust. And now it's one more thing to be anxious about. You're not alone. Two 
thirds of all men our age, even younger than us, have signs of male pattern baldness. Now, for, it's, it's just some sign of being a person. For a while, you, without without saying too much, seemed to feel like, let's put it that way, you seemed to feel that you were losing hair on the top. Not that I ever noticed. I'm thin. I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. But no, I'm your hair looks there. a lot... Uh, it seems like you have more hair on the top of your head than you did a year ago, which is weird. Well, there are things you can do now, you know, you don't have to just sit in front of the mirror and shrug as the hair goes down the drain. But this isn't just some sort of penis enlargement thing where, where there are lots of ways to do it, but none of it is real. No, this is real. Like, uh, keeps, uh, who has brought you this entry of the omnibus is revolutionizing the hair loss treatment delivery because there are FDA approved treatments now for hair loss, but now you don't have to go to a doctor's office to get a prescription. Um, You can skip the pharmacy checkout line. You do the consultation online. You get the uh, medication delivered to your house. So these treatments really work is what you're saying? (laughs) They they actually really work. 90% effective at reducing your hair loss. And this is what's important. Stopping future hair loss. Like the, the best time to prevent male pattern baldness is like years ago, you know, right. It's, it, it can be preventative. The second best time is today. Can you're saying you can regrow lost hair with keeps? Yes. You can, uh, you can prevent future loss and you can get hair growth back. Nearly a hundred thousand men trust keeps as the way they get their hair loss prevention medicine. So how expensive is this? It sounds like $1,000, $2,000 a month. Now, you, clearly we would all pay thousands of dollars for this. Sure. What if it was just $10 a month? $10 a month to just throw it back in my nine-year-old's face and say, look at daddy's hair now. That's like 0.1% of the amount we thought it was. What a discount. So, if, So if someone's ready to take action, what do they do? That's a great question, John. I'm hmm. glad you asked. Well, you know, it's part of my part of my brand. Go to keeps.com slash omnibus and you'll get your first month of treatment for free. Check it out. Oh, that's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. Do it. Hair today, gone tomorrow. Here's the argument against, here's what political scientists or philosophers will say against the moral duty argument, which you and I find compelling. Oh, wait a minute. There's an argument against it? Yeah. They'll say, why voting in particular? Sure, you've got that's one of your citizenship duties, but you're spending an hour on that. Wouldn't it be just as good to spend an hour volunteering in a food clinic or or a food kitchen or? Well, but that's the that's like a false uh, well, dichotomy. Yes, but the, there's any number of things you could suggest that uh, are are just as much a part of the good life or even good citizenship as voting. So, would you and I say it's just as good to skip voting and uh, and do something else civic for an hour? No, no right? We no, we wouldn't. No, and yet. Uh, it's probably we're probably wrong, right? <laughs> well, but but there, I mean, there is an aspect of of performance that is that that reverberates. Well, that, let me take you now to the kind of the the current state of the art. Nineteen ninety three, a paper written on what they call the expressive theory of voting. Oh yeah, the voting is not actually the problem. Is we've been seeing voting as duty. What if you know in the TV generation we see voting as an act of consumption, and that therefore placing a vote is kind of an identity performance in the same way that wearing a you know a concert 
t-shirt like I am now is, or, or doing the wave at a football game, you know, standing up and clapping at home, even though you know your team can't hear you, uh-huh. you know, that's the same as casting a ballot that you're almost certain will not be the margin of victory. It's definitely the Instagram model of voting, you know, to <laughs> show, show your sticker. Yeah. To post that picture and to have it be part of just, just the universe of self-validation and community val- validation that is social media. But even if nobody knows, you're telling yourself. That's right. This is what I do. This is like, uh, you know, choosing what book I read or what what TV show I watch is choosing which candidate I vote for today. Yeah, it's it's more than just uh, it's more than just saying like I'm important. Um, it's or I'm a role model. I'm I should be an example to my children. It really is investing. Um, it's it's reciprocal, right? Because you're investing in the community, but also you feel, uh, you feel proprietary. Like you feel like the, the, like progress belongs to you. It's not something that's being done to you. Governance. Right. Yeah. Right. That you're in, that you voted for that. And when it happens, you're like, ha ha, I did a, all those people that vote against, you know, vote for $50 car tabs here in Washington state. It's worth 30. Um, or $30 car tab. By the way, if you're not following Washington politics, just a way of handicapping, like <laughs> handicapping light rail funding Yeah, what, by, by getting a referendum on the ballot, limiting, uh, limiting funding. When those people drive around Washington state and they hit potholes and bridges are closed and, uh, they don't think to themselves, this is me. I did this. I made it impossible to drive around. But when they go get their, uh, when they get their registration and it only costs $30, they're like, hell yes, that's right. Keep the government out of my pockets. My sister said that uh, when she stayed with my parents recently, my mom was inveighing against the uh, lack of funding for the ferry, the part of the public transit they use. Right. But uh, furious about what she sees or what, you know, Cairo Radio or whatever sees as the mismanagement of light rail here in Seattle by those corrupt uh, war on cars bureaucrats. You know, right. The stuff, even though it's the same, you know, the same funding issues affect both. It's, it's uh, you know, it's what affects you. This, this price of your car tabs, the frequency of your ferry boat. When I ran for office, I realized that the that the number one uh, the number one problem facing kind of uh, uh, any attempt to get people engaged in politics is that it's really all about taxes and apportionment of income, and nobody you, you can't keep people's eyes focused when you start talking about. The, the way that tax money is disbursed across different projects. And just so the, it's the complexity in the process of it. Yeah, people tune out uh, and just how to, how to raise money via taxes. You mm-hmm. cannot, you cannot raise taxes, um, indefinitely or, or, uh, unlimitedly. Mm-hmm. And so you have X, you can, the state can generate X number of dollars and there are the following projects that need money. And it's just, even the smartest people drive around town and just sort of wave their arms out the window and say, why can't we just fix this? It's so obvious. And it's like, it's really every time you pay your taxes and every time you vote, it's all about how that pail of money is getting directed and the, and the fixing one also includes, and some other revenue source that doesn't affect me. You yeah, know? Like, sure. Let's, let's magic in some... Well, and in Seattle, there are a lot of people in, in urban Seattle that would happily pay more taxes. Every poll shows yep. that Seattleites would vote for more taxes if they could. But the, the state legislature 
uh, puts caps on how much money Seattle can generate um, because the legislature has the power to to um, regulate taxation, municipal taxation. So increasingly, uh, another you know, so there's all these uh, arguments that you can make for uh, to explain the paradox of voting and counter arguments. But increasingly, a, a new argument you can make for voting is that your vote might count. Mm. You might be hello the deciding vote. Uh, we you know we talked about some of the reasons why that it feels demoralizing to people when the popular vote does not match inauguration day. Yeah. Um, but uh, what about the case where an election comes in mathematically tied? In that, in a case like that, any single voter who didn't vote or changed his mind is the voter affecting policy, uh, affecting what happens, and that could be you. Right. Um, but how? And it's a non-zero chance. Tied. It just it just feels like so impossible. So the cases I've been able to find of this happening, which are a lot of U.S. state uh, assembly, state legislatures, it's not uncommon. Uh, it happens in, analogously in Canadian provinces, or and even um, at their at their federal level, at the national assembly, there have been multiple ties. Um, obviously, it's going to happen in places with smaller populations more. Right. And there's you know it's just lower you know uh, for obvious reasons a fifteen hundred and thirty one to fifteen hundred thirty one tie is more likely than an eight hundred and sixty seven thousand two hundred seventy eight vote. To 867,278. Right. So uh, in the U.S., it mostly happens in smaller areas, uh, state legislatures. In Canada, it happens on the national level where the numbers are lower. It's happened in Swiss cantons. It's happened in U.K. parliamentary constituencies. And then that's, again, leaving alone all the smaller municipal elections and county-level elections where it's probably happened. The largest, uh, the you know, the biggest turnout case I found where it's happened uh, was in Australia in 1985, for the Legislative Council of the State of Victoria, so the equivalent of our state legislature, uh, the vote was 54,821 to 54,821. It demands that you go back and recount. Endlessly. You, this is where you get multiple machine recounts, hand recounts, court battles over every single questionable ballot. You know, a, 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 a panel of judges has to decide, well, was that bubble filled in or not? Uh, and it's and it's never totally decidable, but you're just trying to get an answer right. that meets the demands of the law and seems better than the other answer. Because it's all, you you do see cases where people win elections by a handful of votes, sure. and it often feels like such an injustice. I can imagine as a candidate. You, you remember the Washington gubernatorial race, yeah. Greg, Gregoire and uh, what's his name, the perpetual loser uh, guy from uh, Bellevue, uh, uh, Rossi. Yeah, Dino Rossi, where he was ahead on. Both machine recounts and the first hand recount, and then she won twenty seven votes. And and there really was from the part of the right there. Oh, these turned up at the post office. Of course, right. Wink, wink. But but to to imagine being, I mean, when I ran for office, I got sixteen percent of the vote in the primary, and that was not enough to advance. But if I had if I had been within a hundred votes, let's say, um. I think I would be devastated that I, I would, I'd walk into the supermarket and we'll look around and go like, if all of you had just voted. Well, imagine if it's one, you know? Yeah. Just insane to think. Then you would have felt bad about your, your, uh, your protest vote for, um, what's his name? John Grant. Was I did not vote for John Grant. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't do the sporting thing and, and vote for, uh, 
Vote for your opponent? I, I, you only get one opportunity in life, probably, to vote to for see yourself. your own name on Unless you're one of those uh, so candidates saying, like John Grant that's run four times. <laughs> so, do you know Rossi? <laughs> one and lost. So you're saying all those stories about people sportingly voting for their comp- uh, 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 rival are... are, are um, psychologically impossible because you know, you'll the, see your own name on a ballot and be like, Oh boy. You know, the, the, I think that the era of sportsmanship, like did, did Jimmy Carter vote for Gerald Ford? I can see that. Well, I can see Jimmy Carter. Sure, Cause he knew he was going to win Georgia. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I could see the man feeling like, well, that's just what we do. But, but, uh, when I looked at a ballot, I mean, I thought I was the best candidate. So it wasn't a question of, that's the thing. May the best man win. Even if you're voting for your opponent, it's not because you feel like he's the best candidate or she. It's it's because you need to it's, hope it's some that, kind of weird gesture. Yeah, you wouldn't have run if you didn't think you were better than him or her. Yeah, right. Or at least, I mean, if you go in and feel like the other guy's probably better, uh, you probably shouldn't have run for office. You know, these ties happen more often more recently, maybe just because of record keeping. But the earliest one I've been able to find is 1886 huh? uh, in a British parliamentary constituency ashton under line uh i think which is in the manchester area which was tied 3049 to 3049 uh and ended up with a famous english cricket hero alexander butler rowley losing to the to the tory incumbent Uh, now why why would he have lost if it was a tie there are three different ways you resolve Thank a tied election. Goodness, we got to. Let's it. get to that. Oh, but before before I get to that, here before that, the latest, uh, and you probably saw, do you do you remember reading about a recent tied election? Twenty seventeen, the Virginia House of Delegates uh, had had a two thirds Republican majority going into the the twenty seventeen election, uh, and the Republicans emerged. Sorry, the Democrats emerged with what seemed to be a fifty fifty split house, mm-hmm. some kind of power sharing. Uh, agreement would have to be reached between the two parties. Because, you know, uh, Northern Virginia, the D.C. suburbs, uh, now pretty reliably blue and have been growing faster than the rest of the state. Right. So Virginia is turning, turning blue faster uh, than anywhere else in, in what you might call the South. Uh, and so this was just a watershed election, two-thirds Republican majority to 50-50, except because it looked like uh, Shelley Simons had won her uh, race against Republican David Yancey. But after a few recounts, uh, it turned out Simons was only one vote ahead. Sorry, Simons was only one vote ahead, and then a panel of judges found an overvote with votes for both candidates, but a slash through Simons, and they decided that did constitute a legal vote for Yancey. Huh. And suddenly, it is eleven thousand six hundred eight to eleven thousand six hundred eight exactly. Uh, and so this is not just going to determine the outcome of this little Virginia state legislative district. This is going to determine which party has control of the whole state's assembly. Wow. So this is your canonical one vote can make a difference. Like One confused person who can't figure out how a ballot works. One person <laughs> slashing out an overvote is going to determine whether the Democrats or the Republicans control the Virginia House of Delegates for the next term. So you asked what happens in this case. In six or seven of these 20 cases— there were revotes. Revotes. Oh, that's even worse. Special election or by election, and th- that's not just everybody saying, "Boy, what do we do?" Uh, uh, we'll punt. Like there was legal recourse in these situations where, if there's a tie, the co- the code says we vote again. And you know, just by virtue of the fact that the tie was exceedingly unlikely, the tie does not get repeated. Right. Um, but you lose so many people that are like, Ugh, 
but maybe you get, I already voted but, once. But maybe you get new people who are who are like, boy, uh, this is actually going to matter this time. This is a tight election. My my vote's important. Right. So you get a different looking electorate. Uh, there are four or five cases where there is a tiebreaker. Uh, parliamentary systems often have what is called a returning officer, the one who's in charge of carrying out the election. And in a lot of these, particularly it looks like parliamentary systems like uh, Britain's, the returning officer will cast a deciding vote when he announces the results. Huh. Maybe he or she doesn't vote just in case. You don't just you don't just pull your your uh, three sided die out of or your triangular die out of your D and D bag and and throw it. I don't think he votes randomly, and that's what happened in the case of the uh, the cricketer who lost his his challenge in 1886. The returning officer was the mayor of uh, what was it Ashton under Lyne, and he he re- he returned the results and said they're tied. But I'm voting for the incumbent, and Addison wins. Well, he didn't already vote, though, is the presumption. Yes, he doesn't get to vote twice. But So he didn't vote in the election. I wonder if that's by design in the parliamentary system. The returning officer stays neutral until they have to. Hmm. Um, But the majority of these, they're actually settled by lot. The the, the law actually says... Really? Draw straws? Yeah, draw straws. Some random method of choosing a winner will be... And it's it's no what kidding. happens it's what happens in sports once a certain level of playoff qualification things have been gone through uh, you know po- points against you know de- uh, margin of victory right. it always comes down to coin flip because you want to have some recourse that cannot be tied and margin of victory you know all those things could be tied so it comes down to casting of lots um, in the case of Yancey the the Republican who ended up winning his seat and giving a 5149 majority in the Virginia House of Delegates, uh, both Yancey and Simon's names were placed in film canisters. Uh, Thrown for- into the sea, and the first one that was found... <laughs> no, just drawn from a bowl. A local ceramicist provided a bowl. Oh. And, uh, you know, and often there's a little more local color. Uh, there was a 94 race in Wyoming where um, two ping pong balls were placed in a cowboy hat. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, boy, and that's out. local color, all, all right. That's what you want, I think. I thought that you were going to say... Two ping pong balls were fed to a cow, and the first one that came out was the winner. Uh, and I think that one was done on the Today Show live because, you know, it was such a spectacle. Right. Um, you know, NBC is delighted to have a Wyoming state assembly race decided at their studio. It's, you know, it's good for viewership. And it makes it look above reproach that there's live video of the, the ping pong balls being drawn. Um, sometimes it's uh, coin, coin toss is not uncommon. Right. Literal coin. In 2006, uh, in your home state of Alaska, this is going to be the most Alaska thing you've ever heard. The House, Democ- uh, some Alaska House seat, um, the Democratic primary ended in a tie. Uh, uh, a guy named Edgman and Moses, two state assembly people named Edgman and Moses, tied 1534 to 1534. And they resorted to a coin toss, a special coin with a walrus on one side. Yes. That's heads. Which is, I believe, is legal tender in Alaska. That's right. Well, the, the the walrus we call it. You guys rep- recarve all the U.S. presidents on coins to look like wal- walry. <laughs> all U.S. presidents already look like walry. The back of the coin had a seal, but confusingly, not a fur seal like the state seal of Alaska. Right. So it had <laughs> the Great Land. <laughs> right. So heads is a walrus. See, uh, this tail uh, tails is a state seal. It's, the coin is tossing the air, and as if it's not Alaska enough already, with a walrus on one side and a seal on the other. An eagle grabs it and <laughs> flies off. No, it rolls across the floor and lands on a sea otter pelt. No. We're supposed to assume it's, and it kind of lands, bounces off a sea otter point uh, pelt and comes up tails, winning, I believe, uh, 
Brian Edgman, the, uh, the, the primary, um, in Switzerland's case, the case of a Swiss canton, they, uh, their statute said it had to be done by lottery. Uh, and so they had a computer model, a lottery and pick a winner. And the person who lost appealed the ruling right. saying that that's not a lottery. If a computer is just picking a random number, you actually have to have like a lottery with like tickets and balls and stuff. And the computer cut off the oxygen to their chamber. Yeah. They didn't want Eliza running the lottery. <laughs> I'm sorry, Bob. And the court agreed and had, had a manual lottery done with, with ping pong balls being pulled and the other, uh, the other uh, candidate won. Oh, uh, so it all hinged on what what kind of, you know, whether a computer lottery is a lottery. Turns out God wanted that candidate is what that means. If you, that's how you know. That's yeah. how you, all, you know, all elections have divinely approved results. Flip the coin, it's God that's doing it. For example, it, it, it's even more Baroque in a case like this. 2014 city council seat in Neptune Beach, Florida comes up tied, and they came up with this. First, the candidates pulled names out of a hat, but that was to determine who would pick heads or tails in a coin toss. Oh, yeah. And then that was to determine who would draw the ping pong ball in the final test. So it was like a three-stage randomization. You could win twice and lose. That's right. It was not best two out of three. Boo. <laughs> Incidentally, picking out numbered ping pong balls is not just how they settle state legislative seats. That's also how they pick the podiums on Jeopardy. What? Yeah, when you, uh, you know, is the, there an advantage, a perceived advantage to any particular podium? I don't think so. It could, you were, it might be psychological. You, you might, were, you might think in the middle, you're in the thick of it, but you might. I mean, the winner always sits at uh, at stage right, audience left, or stands oh. at. But the other two candidates, the other two competitors, the winner is always in chair number one. Yeah, the challengers have to draw for podiums to determine who's in the middle and who's on the end. But during the Jeopardy goat, you were in the middle, and James uh, was uh, stage. Stage right, and uh, James was. Did I say James? How many? Oh, how many of them were named James? No, Brad was stage left. Stage left audience right. Did you feel in that situation that James had a psychological advantage being in the winner's chair? Yeah, that was drawn once and maintained. I think f- to avoid viewer confusion, instead of trying to mix it up and make it and kind of equalize whatever the psychological effect of, of lectern placement is. The idea was so the audience would be accustomed to who was where. Right. It's a concession to ABC, I think. And uh, I think I would have liked the winner's podium just because uh, that's... That's where you were most comfortable. <laughs> that's where I've been most successful. <laughs> but you, you, uh, the, being, being at the far right was something all three of you knew and psychologically must have... I think have, we all would have preferred it. Yeah. But I told myself if I couldn't have that, I think in the middle is good because you, you kind of feel like you can keep an eye on, sure. on both of your competitors. You're not... You're, you're never two people away from whatever the action is. Right. Um, here's my favorite one. In 1998, the mayor of Estancia, New Mexico, was chosen uh, with a hand of poker. Whoa. But poker is a game of skill, Ken. It was, uh, there was no skill involved. It was just simple. Oh, uh, draw, draw cards? Yeah, draw, draw five cards and who has the better poker hand. That's uh, pretty New Mexico. I don't think the... The statute actually said it had to be poker. I think it said it could be a, a game of chance, and uh, there was a coin toss to see who would pick the game of chance, and the winner picked a poker hand, which I think pissed off the other candidate who was like, well, I'm not a gambler. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> I love the description of this. Uh, the two candidates played on a beat-up wooden table in a wood floor gymnasium in a municipal building. Fifteen spectators gathered around the table with a dozen reporters. 
That's American political life for you. I mean, you. this sounds like an execution. But here's the funny thing. Both players drew five-card heart flushes, raising <laughs> questions about whether the deck was properly shuffled. Five-card <laughs> heart flushes? Everybody drew a heart flush. And the winner had an ace-high flush, and the runner-up had a ten-high flush. I mean, you can't argue with that, ace-high flush. That's clearly God's... He uh, had the nuts. But uh, because that's now uh, precedent in New Mexico, it's quite possible that if two candidates ever were to tie in the popular vote in New Mexico, even in a presidential election, that, say, Trump and Biden would have to play a single hand of poker to determine who wins those, what, three electoral votes? I kind of love that. I mean, really kind of love it. Although it does feel like if there's ever a time where the tiebreaker should be a test of skill— it's when the vote is tied. Like at, that's the moment that you should that's what, yeah. that you should have to hit a target with a dart or something, or uh, just to demonstrate your superiority. Game of laser tag, maybe. Well, you know, you don't want one where somebody's size or or physicality could could play that much of a role. So, well, you, and should, you don't want one where intelligence matters either. Well, I don't know. That's kind of <laughs> my my instinct. You think it should be like a Sudoku race? Well, you've already established that Sudoku isn't a test of intelligence. It should be, um, I don't know, name all states in 50 capitals as fast as you can. <laughs> you know, when, when I, I moderated a mayoral debate here in Seattle, uh, yeah, it was during the primary uh, there was a there was a mayoral debate that I was asked to to moderate between um, future mayor Mike McGinn and um, his his opponent, and at the time I think uh, like favored competitor uh, Malahan was it Mike Malahan Joe oh, Malahan oh, that's right Joe Malahan and uh, and it was you know it was a debate but I but I was not just moderating it I was responsible for the questions too. And one of the one of the questions was, can you name every county that ha- has a border with King County? And did, McGin- people, did people think you were like asking ticky tack gotcha kind of questions? Well, it's just like, I mean, you're going to be mayor of Seattle. Can you name every county? That's what I think. But the resistance to that kind of every time that happens in a debate where somebody says, you know, uh, Trump couldn't name the president of Belarus, everyone's like. Why are you asking him gotcha questions like that? Right, right. And I, but I felt like, hey, this is I was asked to do this debate and this is my debate to do. The one that that McGinn the one that won him the debate um and let's just say the election <laughs> probably was uh I said, you know, here we're did here. You, did you have them get on, get on their bikes? No, but it but it was bike related. Oh. I said, you're here at uh it, you know, at this this venue in Ballard. You did route finding? I said, what route would you guys take to get to the corner of Broadway and John? Did your mom suggest this question? No, it was just, it was just, it seemed native to me. If you're going to be mayor of Seattle, you need to get from, from Ballard Avenue to Broadway and John. You need to be able to know how to do that. Did you get a laugh? Uh, well, I mean, all my questions were, were every uh, question got a laugh. <laughs> were of this family of like, okay, you want to be mayor of Seattle? Like, Let's see how how well do you know Seattle? What do you order at Ivers? Yeah, where are you coming from? And uh, and Malahan was like, he just immediately started to describe the route he would take to uh, Broadway, and it was clear he didn't know he didn't know the the geographical geographical layout of Seattle at all. He was he was trying to get himself to I five and and uh, and so he. Do you believe of, the correct answer does not involve I five? 
Well, no, but you you need to make a case for why you right. would get on I five. I actually don't know what the right answer is. Here. Well, I'm, that's I, the thing. I'm thinking about it right now. I mean, would you take the? Would you go past Gasworks Park and up across University Bridge and up, you know, the up Harvard, or would you go along uh, Westlake? I think I might or, take 40th or, to the freeway. Is that wrong? Should I take? Uh, no, should I could. take the? Should I take the uh, Ballard Bridge and then get on? That's Nickerson? the thing. Do you go Ballard Bridge up to up to um, Denny? Yeah. I mean, there. Oh, it probably is. Ballard Bridge to Denny. Ballard Bridge actually. to Denny is. I, kinda, I think that might be. Right. I would have. I would have scored that pretty highly, but Malhan just could not answer the question, and and it was, and it started to be like because his driver does it. People, yeah, people started to laugh uncomfortably, and then McGinn, you know, McGinn just waited there with a Cheshire grin, and uh, and when it was his time to answer, he said, "Well, I'd get on the Burke Gilman Trail," <laughs> and immediately <laughs> the whole room exploded with you know because he was a famous bike advocate. Uh, and I think that that's why he became mayor. Well, all these election ties have one thing in common, which is a fairly small voter base. You know, it's it's much more likely, as I've said, to have these happen when it's a city council race of, you know, 300 voters than it is in a nation of 300 million voters. Right. And yet, the weird thing about the American presidential vote is that ties are extremely likely because you are not uh, asking 250 million people to vote. You're effectively asking... Uh, what, 538 people to vote? The electors. Yes. Yes. Like, and a, and a 270 tie is a possible, or two, do I get that right? It seems like there should always be an odd number of electors as, as just a, a built-in part of the system, just as the, the Senate always has a tie-breaking vote. In the vice president. In the vice president. Well, there is a tie-breaking vote in the Constitution, which is the House of Representatives. Right. Constitutionally, if the— Thank goodness. Yeah, they'll know what to do. (laughs) If the Electoral College is tied, uh, it goes to the House. And uh, currently, the incoming House, although that was not always true in American history. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. And so I spent quite a bit of time this morning looking at what would happen in the case of an Electoral College tie, which, again— is not impossible. And what's interesting is that even though Democrats have a huge advantage in the House right now, the tie-breaking vote in a presidential election goes by state delegation, with each state getting one vote. Okay. Which, again, could be tied. Sure. (laughs) 25 to 25. (laughs) So even though today Democrats have a 37-seat advantage in the House, um, and that, you know, right now it looks like that will be bigger when the incoming House comes in, but who knows? Uh, Your polls may look different in your era. Uh, Republicans currently control 26 states. Sure. And that's with an asterisk. Um, that's they, why we. That's why the, the left is so, like, exercised about admitting Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. I mean, yeah, many, that and many Senate votes. Sure. But, you know, this is, this is one case where that actually matters. And it really matters who controls a House delegation because, you know, you've got all these cases like Wisconsin or North Carolina – where the electorate is reliably blue, but gerrymandering has led to, like in North Carolina's case, it's like seven to two or something, even though the state, even though, um, you know. The popular vote. The, the Tom Tillis, the gover- the Democratic senator currently is polling at like 54% there. Right. Um, wow, fascinating. And the funny thing right now is if, if you were to use the outgoing House, not only do Democrats have 20, uh, Republicans have 26 seats, one of those states is Michigan, which wa- did have an eight to seven Republican lead until Justin Amash. Am I saying that right? Kind of that uh, a deeply conservative Freedom Caucus guy who decided, for whatever reason, he was not on board with Trump. Uh-huh. Decided to leave the voted to impeach 
and then left the party. And so he is now sitting in as a, in a Michigan House seat as a Libertarian Party member. So Michigan is tied seven seven one. So it, it could, and, the, and the tiebreaker is a is a libertarian. It could all come down to this third party guy. <laughs> and also think about states where there's a two person delegation that yeah. has to figure out how they're going to vote. I mean, that's pretty. It's pretty clear how Hawaii's two two uh, congressmen Congress people will vote. Right. But um, Wyoming has one person from from Casper and one from Laramie. I think Wyoming is one. The weird case I could find, the most likely split delegation I could find is uh, oh, New Hampshire. Right. Wyoming does have just one. New Hampshire has two congressional seats right now. One, both of both of them are currently Democrats, but one is a is a district with a, with a kind of a two point Republican lean. Yeah. That only has a Democratic a Democrat right now because of the disastrous twenty eighteen midterms for the Republicans. Right. So t- in a typical year, New Hampshire would have one Democrat and one Republican. I don't know how they would vote in the case of a electoral college tie. Do they? Well, they'd do vote they fight? On, on behalf of New Hampshire, whichever candidate seems like it's they've come to New Hampshire enough times. Does does the state have any power over? Does the senior Congress person have any? It's not like a Senate seat where there's. Right, it might be Seniority. just a, it might just be the the senior. It might just be them slap fighting and grabbing for the mic. Whoever is the biggest bully, I guess. This happened once in U.S. history. You may recall. You, you won't recall unless you're two hundred twenty years old, which I could be. Yeah, there can be only one. Ken, you, you do look a little older when you shave the beard. Yeah, thanks. Uh, wait it, a minute. No, that was supposed to be the wait opposite. A in eighteen hundred, uh, the Constitution allowed did not have. Uh, did not have the vice president run as a vice president, if, right. if you catch my meaning. He, yeah, you you became vice president if you got second place were, in the yes, presidential election. Yes, and in this case, uh, both the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans ran two candidates, intending that to be a ticket. Um, but Jeffer- uh, So uh, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr both received uh, 73 votes— as Democrat Republicans, because the party system had started to develop. Right. So that, you know, they received more votes than the Federalists did, but it was the same number of votes. Right. And there was no way that anybody was going to cross the aisle. So the House, so not only was it tied in the, uh, in the Electoral College, the House vote tied as well. Really? So they each won, so Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, the two Democrat Republicans, each won 73 Votes, but they had a plan to give one guy more than the other, so it was clear who the president would be. Oh, sure. And when that didn't happen, their you know their their vote failed. Uh, suddenly, you've got a tie in the house, and the house kept voting, and the house voted thirty five times and kept getting a tie. Whoa! Between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, uh, and so finally, uh, Alexander Hamilton, a prominent Federalist, intervened and and got certain a certain segment of his party to say that, uh, you know. Thomas Jefferson's the better of the two, and and they're both better. You know, they'll be more, you know, more friendly. And so Alexander Hamilton was the one who got Aaron Burr kicked out of the White House, Mister Burr, sir. And yeah, obviously, spoilers. Burr gets his revenge at the end of the Act Two, right? Uh, by shooting him. Yes, that's that's, and that's what you should do. Yes, of course. When a close election comes down to one vote, and that's what I would have done. That's what should have happened in Alaska when the when the coin landed walrus side down. Somebody you, should have got out. Uh, uh, what's it? What's the Alaska equivalent? AR fifteen? No, no. I think the Alaskans. You would you would have twelve gauges loaded with slugs, just in case. I think what they should have done is flip the coin up in the air and see who could put a slug through it. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's how that election should have been decided. I think we should have that instead of elections. And then it lands on a living seal, and you have to kill the seal. This is why. And make a hat out of it. See, this is why uh, you can't tax the rich, because. 
Right. Who can afford a seal? Exactly. Not every state can have a seal. Right. This would the, o- it would only work in Alaska. The Alaska, the Alaska state seal should be a seal. And that concludes Election Ties, entry 400.1CH2508, certificate number 30371 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram should all be completely intolerable right now for you, presentlings, on Election Day. Futurelings, if you want to look back at people are going to be freaking out. People's Facebook pages from November, what is it, the fourth, the fifth, in twenty sixteen, twenty twenty. Oh, in twenty twenty, it'll be the third, November third, two thousand twenty. Go back and look at the archived Facebook pages of all of your ancestors, and you will learn to hate them. Just stay off Twitter today if you're listening to this now. You don't want to. You don't want to be there. But you can go to at Omnibus Project at all these social media accounts and and find a safe haven where we are just promoting our show. <laughs> We're all, we don't care who the president is. We just want Patreon subscribers and $30 car tabs. Right. Uh, at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick, you will see our hot takes. And almost certainly, Ken and I will be off of those social media accounts on Election Day because we have learned to survive. We are the we are the roaches that live in the post apocalypse of having once believed in social media. I've already blasted off my nerves on Twitter, and I just feel nothing now. Is that right? I'm numb to it. Yeah, I can I can I can look at the worst takes. Yeah, and uh, you don't care. Yeah, they don't hurt your feelings. No, the bad takes still hurt my feelings. So that's why I have to be I have to go there very gingerly. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, every once in a while, I post a. Some picture that I imagine is flattering of me, but really just makes me look like some old dad that is in dirty overalls. But it turns out there's some overlap. But you know, many, many of your followers want that. Yeah, they do. They do. Well, I, my contention is that people want to see pictures of the people they follow on Instagram. That if your Instagram account is just pictures of apples or your dog or funny signs that you see on the side of the road, Sunsets. nobody really cares. Nobody wants to see what you think is cool. They want to see you. Because they're your friends. That's the only reason they're following you. I even, I, I would contend that people want to see you in dirty overalls. Like that's, yeah. that, that's, that matches with their, their fantasies and fetishes about you. That's right. Unless you're running an Instagram account that is about like massive tattoo fails or people crashing water skis, in which case nobody wants to see your face. They just want more water ski crashes and more tattoo fails. But your friends don't want to see your freaking garden. Let me tell you. Put yourself in the garden. Self- yeah. Selfie with garden. Yeah. Lay down next to the tomatoes and take a selfie. That's what Stand people Stand next to the sunflowers so we can see how tall they are. That's what we're into. If you want to email us, if you want to email us and argue with us about what people really want on Instagram, just email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. A long time ago, Ken and I just sort of fell into a pattern where Ken read the email and I didn't. What do you mean we fell into this pattern? You stopped <laughs> reading the email. It, like, it's been a minute since you've been in the email. But every once in a while, Ken will forward me an email that, that's where the person refers to me directly. And a lot of times I'll 
read back in the thread. And Ken's been having a conversation with this person for months. And they finally mentioned you. They finally are like, oh, and also say hi to John. And Ken forwards it over to me. And I'm like, you you already know this person. I feel like if they're talking to Omnibus, I don't forward. And maybe I should. Like they they have to be like, hey, John, after what you said about like that one, I will immediately be like, oh, shoot, John's never going to see this if I don't forward it. Right. But the ones that are just like, Omnibus, I love you guys. You're amazing. Should I forward everyone that isn't like... um, Ken, sign Ken, my Ken, yeah. sign my underpants. Sign my breast. Uh, no, just forward me the ones that you think I would be interested in. If they're talking about bush planes, you know, I might want to read it. What if the, if it's your show? Should I send you all of those? Oh, interesting. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Huh. I mean, but I'm also just as interested in your shows. Also, you could actually just go into the email and yeah, read the I email. Would it kill you? Anyway, theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Maybe I'll go in there and start reading them. Uh, I definitely do go to the Futurelings Facebook page and the Reddit and the Discord, although my Discord got hacked the other day. It's <gasps> kind of a bummer. Uh, and I see what people are saying there. I may not always participate, but Ken also is there, and uh, every once in a while we'll chime in. Sometimes, even, we don't just chime in when we are righteously indignant about some place where people got it wrong. Sometimes we just join in because it's fun. It is fun. It is fun. Usually it's because we get to correct someone. Yeah. Where it's like, I disagree. In fact, I corrected you the other day. Yeah, when what you, did I say? You suggested... Oh, you said you were anti... I said you were anti-cottagecore. Yeah, and I was like, I'm not anti-cottagecore. Because you had just texted me. What, what, is, this, is this the kind of cottagecore bullshit your daughter's into or whatever? Yeah, that's right. Because she was listening to banjo music. And I was like, don't do that. Don't go down that road. <laughs> banjo music. But I'm I'm 100% pro cottagecore. In fact, I think I'm going to do an omnibus on cottagecore coming up here very soon. I'm going to do omnibus on cottage cheese. Okay. We should do back-to-back shows. Cottage cheese, cottagecore. It's now a cottage podcast. Uh, you can mail us things, and I do see these things, although, again, Ken kind of filters through them and I guess only brings over the stuff that he doesn't cherry pick out of the, out of the mailbox. Yeah, all the really good stuff. But he brought me this, you know, he brought me this, this book of of Playboy magazine excerpts from the 1950s, which has given me tremendous I started, hours of joy. I started this show to promulgate and propound knowledge yeah. throughout the culture and into the future. You just want people to send you old Ray-Bans. Yeah, I just want their mid-century stuff that decorate my new house once I find it. You just want mid-century vintage erotica. I do. I really do, actually. This show exists to get John vintage erotica. <laughs> uh, but that that is P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 981. Five five, and let's get down to brass tacks, people. This show is run almost entirely on your contributions, and when I say contributions, I mean support. You are. Yeah, just, we don't care about your emotional contributions. Just like your vote, voting with your dollars here and supporting Omnibus, uh, it does matter, and it's not just participation; it's ownership. You have a stake in Omnibus, and uh, it manifests in a lot of ways. You can listen to our Addenda show. You can, uh, in some cases, receive actual show notes from the production of the show. Got to mail out a new batch of those today. You have, the, uh, you have uh, at some tiers, the, uh, the right to choose the topic of an Omnibus. You can tell us what to do. You can and- put us up on a video like Cam Girls and make us uh, talk about Hot Aaron job. Burr or Hot Kiss. Uh, next week, Ken and I have scheduled a, a, a Zoom meeting with a with a futureling that is contributing to the production of the show, where that person can make us talk about whatever they want. Presumably, that's anything can happen. Day they can say, "Hey, what you know, Ken? Why don't you give me a schematic of uh, of the HVAC system in your new house?" 
of the Death Star. It's not that new. Yeah, why don't you, uh, you know, what what would you do if somebody, if a futureling was like, I want you to take apart the Lego Saturn V rocket. That's in your office. Right now while I watch. <laughs> take it apart. Would you do it? That's like Sophie's choice. No. You have right. two Legos. You have to take <laughs> apart one of them. Uh, but you can support the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project. And honestly, almost nothing makes the two of us happier than to- The money? Uh, than to, to than to feel the support uh, of our show expressed how yeah in the way that modern life uh, I think it like has it's all, decided it's is, all ta- it's all taxes and apportionment like, like you say what is love what is love but dollars and thank you and to- euros and pounds oh it's true uh, because Patreon now accepts donations in many of the world's currencies so if you've been listening from the UK or Australia and have felt like, my Australian dollars are only worth 75 cents to the U.S. dollar. They won't want those. That's not true. Just increase your contribution by 25%. If you're in Gambia or Antigua, you can send your currency, which I believe is Bruce Lee postage stamps. <laughs> you can give those through Patreon. Thank you to those of you who do. Yeah, thank you so much. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Some of you are going to find out when polls close. Uh, on the East Coast in just a few hours. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.